Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. My guest today is Neil Melville, author of Two-Handed Sword, History, Design, and Use, and an avid collector of antique swords. But first, as this show is going out on the last day of 2021, I thought I'd share some thoughts about the year gone by and some ideas for the year ahead. It seems that viruses don't do as they're told. We all thought the pandemic would be over long ago, but it's very clearly still with us. I'm not a virologist or an epidemiologist, so I won't go into the whys and hows, but suffice to say that there is no sign of things getting back to normal in any reasonable time frame. I developed an approach to dealing with this, in terms of our own mental health, in 2020 and published it as Swords in the Time of Corona, which you may find helpful. It's free. In short, the key thing for me has been to embrace the idea that swords matter to my people. The practice of swordsmanship is not just good for our physical bodies, because we are who we are, it's also necessary to our mental health. As a leader of this community, it's my job to help my people find ways to connect with their practice, despite whatever limitations may be imposed by the world around us. On a really good day, that may be publishing a book or bringing out a new course. On a bad day, and there have been rather many bad days this year, I might just answer a question from a student or give some thought to the next blog post or the next book or course. If it can be expected to make at least one of my sword people feel a bit better, it counts. So, what have I actually got done this year? The major projects were, in audio, I produced the long-awaited audiobook version of The Theory and Practice of Historical Martial Arts, narrated by Kelly Costigan, and not one, but two audiobook renditions of George Silver's Paradoxes of Defence, in modern pronunciation, read by Jonathan Hartman, and in original pronunciation, read by Ben Crystal. This is peak geek, if you think about it. It's one of those things that the overwhelming majority of the population have zero interest in, but for the tiny few for whom it was made, it's like catnip. I've been putting out a new podcast episode every week without fail, largely thanks to the wonderful Katie McKenzie. This week's episode is number 86, and I have the next dozen or so either recorded or the interview scheduled. On paper, I finished and published The Windsor Method, The Principles of Solo Training, which came out in July. The core message of the book is this, find out what works for you, then do that. It's simple but not easy, which is why you may need the book. On video, I created the Medieval Sword and Buckler online course, which presents my interpretation of the Royal Armouries Manuscript 133 and takes the student from absolute beginner to competent fencer in that style. And on the web, well, in the beginning, the school was just the Helsinki branch and swordschool.com was just the website of a small club. But over the last 20 years, the school has grown in all sorts of ways, and so I have had SourceSchool.com rebuilt from the ground up as a hub for the entire school. We have even created a fun quiz to help you find the stuff you need. I also started the Coaches Corner, a monthly online get-together for instructors and coaches. It's been a delight and a solidly useful resource for all of us, I think, and I'm planning to continue it in 2022. That looks like quite a productive year, especially given the challenges we have all faced. For me, one of the hardest things has been not being able to travel. I normally spend about 60 days of the year in other countries, 
but after getting home from my trip to Australia and New Zealand in November 2019, I didn't get off this tiny island until November this year. Of all the places I could have gone, it's only right and natural that I went home to Helsinki and spent some time with my friends and a full weekend teaching at the Helsinki branch of the school. It was profoundly restorative, and I'm very glad it happened to sneak through in the lull between Delta and Omicron. I've no idea when the next trip will be, but fingers crossed for 2022. Other than the Helsinki trip and publishing the books and course, the peaks of this year were all unrelated to swords. I managed to spend a weekend with my youngest relatives, Hector and Maxine, who live in Abu Dhabi but came to the UK for Christmas. They are six, nearly seven, and five, and I haven't seen them since they were four and two. I got to practice tick-tock, tick-tock, bong with both of them. If you don't know what tick-tock, bong is, there's an explanation in the show notes, or rather a link to an explanation in the show notes. It was great to see the rest of the family too, of course. Teaching Sabraj to my sister-in-law Nadine was great fun, but nothing compares to the shrieks of glee of small children. While in Helsinki, I got to spend time with both my godchildren. Otso and I reprised Guy and Otso's day of fun from my last trip in 2019, and this time we did an escape room type experience and went indoor skydiving. And my goddaughter, Venla, has turned 18, so I took her out to dinner and introduced her to single malt whiskey and cognac. No, not in the same glass, I'm not a monster. She also had a go at a decent cigar. I take my godparenting very seriously. Ten years ago, I had a trial flying lesson in a light aircraft and was hooked, but too broke to pursue it. But this year, I said, fuck it, and I'm learning to fly. As this goes out, I'll have had my fourth lesson and be on my way towards getting my private pilot's license. It is a fabulous experience in all sorts of ways. I've written before about the need for senior instructors to reconnect with their beginneriness. I find that it's very helpful to my own teaching to be overwhelmed and out of my depth learning something new every now and then, as it reminds me what my own beginner students are experiencing. I don't think I've ever felt more of a beginner than I do flying a plane. There is just so much stuff to pay attention to, and the consequences of failure can be fatal. The key to success, I think, is finding the right instructor, someone whom you instinctively trust to keep you safe while you learn the skills to keep yourself safe. I'll be writing this up in much more depth in due course, but I need to think about it longer and get more flying lessons in first. So, what's coming up in 2022? The projects I'm currently working on, or at least thinking about, are... A book on how to teach historical martial arts or anything else. I've spent the last 20 years not just teaching swordsmanship, but actively developing my teaching skills, and I think I've got the basic principles down. If I can find a way to make the book into an online course as well, I will, but I can't currently see how to do that. My morning train-along sessions have been a mainstay of my physical and mental health since I started them back in June 2020. I started them so that I wouldn't need self-discipline to actually get my training done, but they have developed into both a vehicle for developing the health and fitness side of my training and a lovely bit of social interaction. There is a simply gigantic range of possible exercises, including strength, flexibility, power generation, breathing, meditation, and so on. I've been studying these things for about 30 years now, and so I select from the range instinctively based on how my body is feeling and adapt the exercises as needed. It occurred to me that I should document this body of knowledge, and that the best way to do that may be an online video course. There is way too much stuff to put into a book, and much of it is movement, so it is easier to communicate through video. The Finnish word for exercise done for the sake of health and fitness is jumpa. 
The dictionary translation into English is physical jerks. So I am planning to produce an online course of Yumpa. The podcast will continue for the foreseeable future. It's not just good fun. My goal with it has always been to enable you to hear from a diverse range of guests. It is intended to promote diversity in historical martial arts. One of the biggest problems many students face is that swords are expensive and experienced instructors are too, or at least they should be. My most ambitious goal for 2022 is to do something about that. Here's my thought. There are many groups in the world that would benefit from direct in-person instruction from me, but they can't possibly afford the flights, let alone my fees. I either teach for full whack or for free. I don't charge for my time at events like Sword Squatch, and I teach free classes for groups or clubs that can't reasonably be expected to pay. My standard approach in the latter case is to ask for a donation to be made to the charity of my choice, which is usually room to read. The school as a whole is doing pretty well, to the point that I can just about afford flying lessons. So, what if we took the income from one month of Mastering the Art of Arms subscriptions and used that as a fund to cover the expenses, such as flights, all hire if necessary, and so on. I'd teach unpaid, and any money left over could go to a local charity chosen by the hosting sword club. Ideally, this would be in the kind of place where dollars are especially valuable. The school makes its income in dollars, and a dollar in Lima or Jakarta is worth a lot more than a dollar in New York. For this to work, we'll need the following things. Firstly, an application process for clubs which would include details of their club, what they'd want me to cover in the seminar, and details of the local cause they'd like to support with any leftover cash. Secondly, a board of, I think, three respected members of the community to select the winning application. It can't be just down to me, or indeed any one person. I also think it's important that the club does not need to be previously affiliated with the school in any way. Thirdly, Advance notice of which month's income we'd use. Ideally, it would generate some extra subscriptions and or donations. I'm thinking of March because it's the birthday month of the school. And fourthly, absolute transparency in regard to how much money is raised and where exactly it goes. Another possibility would be to use a portion of the money, perhaps 60%, to buy equipment for the club, with the rest going to the local good cause. That would be a lot simpler logistically. It wouldn't involve coordinating the weekend, organising the seminar, booking flights, etc. and is a lot more virus-proof. Organising this kind of thing is entirely new to me, so if you have any relevant experience or advice, I am all ears. Now, on with the show. I'm here today with Neil Melville, author of Two-Handed Sword, History, Design and Use, and an avid collector of antique swords. So, without further ado, Neil, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm, uh, as I say, quite, quite intrigued to be here. <laughs> I, I, yes, I should perhaps mention to the listeners that Neil told me in the sort of pre-interview chat that this is his first ever podcast as a guest. So, um, doubly welcome on your first show. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, pr- probably won't be the last. All right. So, um, just to orient everyone, whereabouts in the world are you? Uh, I live in Stirling, uh, which uh, I'm sure everybody knows is the gateway to the Highlands. In fact, it's the, it's the bridge where, uh, up until almost modern times, everybody had to go through Stirling that was going north. That means all the armies, kings, troops supplies, everything going north or south had to go through Stirling 
and so Stirling Castle was a very important uh, feature. So is that why the Battle of Stirling Bridge um, between Edward III's armies and William Wallace's and Robert the Bruce's Scots was so important? Exactly there, yes. Okay, good to know. Uh, you know, I lived in Edinburgh for a long time, but I hadn't quite twigged on Stirling's strategic importance in that regard. We're sort of halfway between Edinburgh and Glasgow and slightly north of that line. Um, so, I guess living in Stirling, you're surrounded by medieval history. Is that what got you started with swords? Uh, no, I started with swords um, when I was at, at school, really. Um, <clears throat> and I was at school in, in Yorkshire. Uh, but I, okay. I, I can vividly remember um, uh, having a history exercise book and somehow or other I'd managed to actually cover it with drawings of swords. So um, <laughs> quite, quite, quite how that came about, I can't be certain, but uh, there we are. Well, I, I think it's natural and normal. I mean, my notes, um, you know, I, I have notes and I'm reading from, a, I have like a list of questions and things and I, I keep making notes as we're talking. And very often my notes at the end of a podcast interview are just like covered in sword doodles. <laughs> yes. So I, I, th I think for some of us it's just a natural thing to do. It just, it just comes out. So, so how did you really get started? Like, when, um, when was the first time you picked up a sword? Well, I, I, as I say, I was, I was interested in them. I, I, I read books on them. I, I found pictures of them. I took photographs when I was in the, in, if I was in a museum. Um, and then it, it, it it developed into into collecting swords. Uh, okay. Well, sh shall I mention the, the story of how I got my very first one? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, it was I was <coughs> I was actually just finished my my degree and I was going for an interview for a job um, in in Nottingham, in fact. Uh, and on the way to the interview, I passed an antique shop which had uh, what what seemed to me a fabulous sword in the window. Um, I was scared that either the shop would be closed or somebody else would buy it before I could get back. So I went in, bought it. It, took, it cost about uh, £3, I think. It was a, <laughs> I, can, wow. I can remember. It was a 1796 uh, light cavalry sword. Um, so You're I, kidding. No, no, no. I, I bought it. Well, that's it one of the best swords ever made. Yeah, yeah. But it's a long time ago. That's why it was so cheap. <laughs> okay. Um, I went in, bought it, uh, the, 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 the proprietor wrapped it up for me, then I went off to my interview, um, realising that actually carrying this into the interview room might not be the best way of uh, method of success. Uh, I got the, got the secretary in reception um, uh, to uh, sort of hide it for me while I went in, <laughs> and then I collected it on the way back, and I've still got that sort. <laughs> I, wow. I've got um, several others since, which I've since sold, but I've still got that one. Well, yeah, you, you never forget your first, do you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so did you get the job? Uh, no, <laughs> but I don't think it was anything to do with the sword. <laughs> no, no, but also, you know, the, the sort of place where you'd have to hide the fact that you're, you've got a sword with you on going into the interview is probably not the kind of place you really want to work anyway. <laughs> um, okay, so... You've written this book. I mean, let, let me just be completely frank. My friend, Paul Wagner, who I interviewed on this show uh, a little while ago, um, after he'd interviewed me, he said, Guy, you really ought to get Neil 
Melville onto the show because it's like he's written this amazing book called Two Handed Sword. I must confess, I haven't actually had time to read it yet. I will oh, read it, but oh, I haven't got around to it yet. So, uh, well, yes, exactly, exactly. You know, what kind of slack podcast interviewer am I when I don't read every book written by every one of my guests? <laughs> um, but, um, but Paul Wagner is, you know, very well known in our community and very highly respected. And he, he said, Guy, you've got to talk to Neil. So this, this is why you're here. And Paul loves the book. Um, so... I'm, I'm, I'm glad um, about that anyway. Yeah, t- tell us tell us about the book and what it's about, what it contains. Um, go ahead. Well, it's tell us um, all. it's basically a, a history of uh, looking at the sword, the development of the sword from very early times uh, until it. Well, it, it it's still in use as a as a historical fencing weapon, but. Um, over the over the time I was doing it, I have been I've been sort of working on this probably for 30, 40 years, just on and off gradually. Um, so I do the origin and development of the sword. Then I look at the general form. Uh, how is it different from an, from a, a single-handed sword? Um, I look at uh, various different styles, which which I hope I can locate to various regions or even nationalities. Um, I consider how how people actually fought with the two-handed sword, uh, both in, uh, in 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 one-to-one combat, as in duels um, or, or or even uh, practice fencing, um, and then also how it was used in combat, actually on the battlefield. Um, I consider fencing, dueling, uh, tournament use, which is sort of a, not quite a sideline, but um, away from the main main thrust of combat. Um, I come on then to its 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 development uh, as a status symbol and a significance uh, in um, in the aristocratic household and the aristocratic community. Um, and uh, I, I've tried to get as many illustrations of everything that I'm trying to talk about, um, and also. Um, uh, uh, Stuff that I found, uh, even in foreign language sources, where where I can, uh, I can read the language. My my biggest problem actually has been that I, I don't read German. I, I've got the basic, ah, basic yeah, words, of course. Uh, you know, a, a sort of twenty or so individual words, but I can't I can't string them together, and I don't understand. Um, in, you know, when a, a complex technical technical item is being discussed in German. However, on the other hand, I do read uh, French, Italian, uh, and Latin. Okay, we have these terms like bastard sword, long sword, two-handed swords, right-hander, montante, and so on. Yes. So, when does a bastard sword become a long sword, become a two-handed sword? Do you have <laughs> sort of categories worked out? Yes. Well, one of the one of the problems is that um, these categories didn't really exist as such. Uh, it's, it's been a continuous development from the 13th century uh, right up to the to the 18th century, uh, and some some of these terms, of course, never existed in in, in their own time. Terms like zweihander, uh, uh, for instance, or hand and a half sword. These are modern terms. 
Okay. Um, so, all right, but so in your opinion then, what what is a, what's the difference between a long sword and a two-handed oh, well. sword? Um, I, if I start at the other end and, and say that, okay. as far as I'm concerned, a two-handed sword has got to be wielded with two hands. It cannot be wielded with one hand. It's too heavy, too long. It, it, it specifically needs two hands to wield it. Uh, okay. A development of that is it can be wielded much more easily uh, and effectively if the hilt is long enough that the two hands can be separated, not not touching each other or, or even overlapping, so that you get a sort of fulcrum effect uh, over the middle of the hilt with, with one hand uh, pushing and the other hand pulling. Okay. So, um, all right, okay. so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, okay, Fiore explicitly says in uh, Il Fiore of Italia that, or is, no, sorry, beg pardon, it's Vadi. Vadi says in Data Gladiatorium de Micandi that there should be space on the handle for three hands. Okay, yes. so you have, in other words, it's the, the grip is as long as at least three palm widths. So you can get, you could get three hands on if you had three hands. Yes. Um, uh, is that sufficient? Do you think to make it a two-handed sword? Yes, I, th I think so. Okay. So, so that, um, the, the, as I say, the, the development is is gradual. Um, it, around 1300, blades, it, uh, smiths were able to make longer blades. The, the, the steel technology had advanced to the to the point that they could make longer blades, and uh, obviously people this, uh, found this was this could be more effective. They could deal heavier blows. Um, so at this point you get what, what you could call the war sword, uh, the epée the de guerre, or, or the great sword. These, these are what I, I would consider uh, blade, blades of, um, say, 90 centimetres, 90 to 100 centimetres, hilts, uh, perhaps um, uh, 20, 20 centimetres. As... as um, Technology improved, and as as warriors found the, the the use of this sword, which of course is always going to be much more expensive, uh, then it it, it, it it grew in grew in in, in uh, size. Um, the, the term long sword uh, causes a lot of problems. Um, I've had yes. discussions with people who who claim that this is a long sword or that is long sword, and that's not a long sword. So the term longsword in, in the sources uh, seems to be used to cover virtually any sword uh, which is longer than, than a single hand sword. Not, not a yeah. specific, uh, not a, not a specific uh, category or specific size. Um, so we go, we go through uh, the, the war sword to uh, a sword which nowadays might be called a hand and a half sword. Um, although, as I say, that term was not used. It's, it's a modern term. Um, where the sword basically can be wielded with one hand, um, uh, particularly say on on horseback, where the the warrior needs a longer reach. Uh, but if he's dismounted, it can be used on on foot, uh, perhaps with the the addition of the the second hand um, on the end of the grip or over the pommel to give extra force. Not particularly to aid in the wielding of the sword, just to add add strength. Um, 
then ar around uh, the middle of the of the uh, no, well, I was going to say around the middle of the 14th century, probably nearer the end of the 14th century, um, we, we, we get some swords which I think can be described as real two-handed swords. Not, not very many, but uh, there's one or two which, which can specifically be dated. For instance, there's one in Istanbul, uh, which was previously in Alexandria and has been, was dated when it was deposited in Alexandria to 1368. And this is a two-handed sword. It's got a got a blade uh, over a meter and and a hilt around uh, thirty centimeters. Wow, definitely uh, a two-handed sword. Yes. Um, then um, we, the, the, the uh, swords of this size be, become uh, improved. Uh, they uh, uh, they 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 become become def de defined for a specific purpose. Um, in, the, in the end, of course, we, we end up with, with a variety of swords um, with uh, fancy hilts, with uh, extra parrying lugs on the blade, um, with side rings at the hilt. Um, th these, these are still being used in combat uh, through the, uh, really up to the just past the middle of the 16th century. Uh, it's been said that the Battle of Pavia in 1525 was the, the high point of the use of the two-handed sword. Um, the, uh, the tapestries in, in Naples uh, have some absolutely splendid examples of warriors wielding their two-handed swords in the battle. Um, by the end of the, of the 16th century, uh, we've now got swords of such a size uh, 170 centimeters and so on, which really uh, can't be used in battle. They're, they're too heavy. Um, I found that in, in just basically in doing my, my research, that uh, battle swords, if you like to call them that, uh, from the the 15th into the into the first half of the 16th century, they they average about 2.3 kilos in weight um, and. Uh, in, in total length around 150, 150 plus uh, centimetres uh, with a blade of around 110 centimetres. Um, th these, are, these are real two-handed swords. They can't be used with one hand, um, but they can be used in battle and were used in battle. After that, uh, as they got even bigger, I think uh, th they fell out of use for combat. They were just too big. Uh, but on the other hand, um, they, they, they were used as status symbols. Um, a lord or a, or a commander, a governor, a general, uh, could be surrounded by men wielding these massive swords, and that added, added prestige to his position. Okay, because, yeah, I'm familiar with uh, some of the uh, early 17th century Portuguese sources which deal with uh, Montante, and... It's, it seems to be explicitly a bodyguard weapon. Yes. In the, uh, okay. the, 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 um, the accounts that we have from that period show that, um, that, that, that mainly, certainly by uh, the, the early 16th century and probably earlier than that, uh, the, the, the two-handed sword wasn't used as a mass weapon. In fact, I don't think it was ever used as a mass weapon. Uh, for one thing, uh, need, needing the space to wield it meant that you couldn't you couldn't have a load of comrades standing next to you. 
So, um, so by just just to be specific uh-huh. about terms, by a mass weapon, you mean a weapon used in a group of soldiers? Yes. Like a pike. Okay. Yes, exactly. Okay. Uh, so um, it, it, it seems to have devolved um, fairly quickly into uh, a weapon used used to used as a bodyguard, uh, bodyguard the, uh, the guard the ensign uh, or the commander or various officers, and we have some of the some of the German uh, accounts uh, describe the numbers of, uh, of different types of swords in the army, um, where you've got perhaps a body of say two hundred pikemen. But only twenty two-handed swordsmen. Right. Okay. Interesting. So um, I'm thinking because Fiore wrote his Il Fiore Battaglia around 1400, and he mm-hmm. shows a sword which is mo- well often used with two hands on the weapon. But there's an entire section of the sword being used on foot with one hand. And that is what I think of when I think of a longsword. And to my mind, that is clearly not a two-handed sword because it is, you know, it is used in one hand. But Fiore describes it, he actually says, it's a spada a due mani, which is a sword of yes. two hands. Um, and then later on, we have um, the spadone, like the great sword, the big sword, yep. um, in 16th century Bolognese sources which is very clearly a what we would think of as a two-handed sword. You wouldn't, you couldn't really carry it as a sidearm in a scabbard on your hip. It's just way too long. Yeah. Um, the, okay, the trouble so, is so that, that. I was going to say go the, the, the trouble is that there's uh, the whole lot of confusion um, about about terminology, whether people people refer to two-handed swords when they're not really two-handed swords, uh, and this this carries on right up to the modern day modern books can refer to a two-handed sword and I look at it and say that's not a two-handed sword um, <laughs> sure they, 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 this confusion I mean yeah, it, it, it goes right back to the uh, to the 15th century as you say with, with Fiore um, I, I refer to him as uh, to his illustrations of swords as being two-handers but I, I accept that uh, uh, there are occasions um, when some of his pictures show the show the sword being wielded with one hand it's, uh, it's just one of those ambiguous uh, stages well I mean to, to my mind um, his sword is about maybe 120 centimeters long you can certainly use it with two hands um, and he, he explicitly calls it a sword of two hands right so yes. it can't be wrong to call it a two-handed sword if the no. author of the manuscript calls it a two-handed sword it's like but it, to my mind that's more of a I would call that a long sword rather than a two-handed sword because in my head Two-handed sword is something that is not really a sidearm. You don't carry it in a scabbard on, on your belt. It's something that has to be actually carried, like a rifle. Uh, whereas a, a long sword is, is, a, is a long version of a sword that can be carried on the... On the yes, well, uh, as I said earlier, uh, the, the term long sword can be applied to, to anything that's, <laughs> that's longer than that. Right. Uh, <laughs> so anything that, that's that, long. That, that, I think is it that modern practitioners of uh, historic fencing uh, have sort of uh, taken over this term and used it for their own purposes to describe that this a particular sword, which is say as you say about 120 centimeters um, long and perhaps um, a blade of just under a under, under a meter. Yeah, guilty as charged. <laughs> Absolutely, because <laughs> uh, yeah, we've got we've got to have a simple name for the thing and. and you know, all of us doing historical fencing sort of get what we mean when we say it's a longsword. 
right? Yeah. As different to a two-handed sword, as different to an arming sword or a rapier or some other kind of sword. But yeah, yes. like in many of the sources, they just they just call it sword. So when yeah. Vadi writes spada, he means sword, as in the sword that he's talking about. And when Cabaferro, who's very clearly talking about rapiers, describes his sword, and he actually you know, describes its length and in, in some detail, um, he just calls it a sword. He doesn't call it a rapier or any fancy term. It's just sword, because that's what a sword was for him in that culture at that time. So, yeah, yeah we're, trying to, we're, trying to, we're trying to basically make definitions that didn't exist in period. And, and, and everybody's got their own definition, or rather, not everybody, but uh, there are different <laughs> definitions um, flying around. Uh, so there is just no accepted um, status of, of nomenclature, I'm afraid. And, and we, we all make our own uh, de- definitions, including me. Yeah, and that... <laughs> yeah, I see, I don't have a problem with that. I think that's a perfectly reasonable and normal thing to do because, you know, we're, we're starting a, a new field of historical study, which, you know, it's been going for about 25 years now and maybe 30 years, and it's, it's going to be a while before everyone settles on definitions. Like, if you go into museums now, you can find Bronze Age swords... If they're particularly long and thin, they get described as rapiers. Yes, yeah, I know. I've seen it's them. Like, it's not. It's not a bloody rapier. It's, <laughs> it's a bronze pig sticker. I mean, it's like they're like two and a half feet long or something. It's just because yes. they, they're a bit longer than a normal bronze sword, and they've got the thin blade rather than the wide one. They're called rapiers. It's like no, not a rapier. But there we go. <laughs> uh, yes, but you you, okay. you, try, you try you try telling that to. Uh, to the general public or, uh, or even some museum curators. Right, yes. Um, okay, now, just to return to Paul Wagner for a minute, um, uh-huh. who is in episode 6 and 9 of the show, he, because he suggested I invited you on, and I'm very glad that he did, um, he sent me, I, I asked him, is there anything you particularly want me to ask Neil? And he replied back with a very long question, and I will read you the whole thing. <laughs> um and then, then we can see if we can satisfy Paul's curiosity on this point. Okay, brace yourselves. All right. Paul writes, despite the... Obs- I need to do this in an Australian accent, but I can't, so I'm just going to do it in Australian. <laughs> despite the obscurity of the English longsword sources I work with, I do have the great advantage of knowing exactly what kind of two-hand swords they are using, thanks largely to Neil's sterling research. So, the Halean manuscript, for example, dates from 15... 15- Ah, sorry, dates from 1450-ish, maybe a little earlier, and the swords in use at that time, such as those from the Castellon Horde, are considerably longer and heavier, i.e. 140 to 150 centimetres, 2 to 2.5 kilos, than the standard feather generally used by modern practitioners, i.e. 100 centimetre blade, 30 centimetre grip, 1.6 kilos in weight. And from what I can tell, most 15th century two-handers are like that. While I've personally come across a few real swords of those kinds of dimensions, they've always been a little shorter and significantly lighter. True bastard swords easily used in one hand, including, by the way, a pair of genuine fedders. So, I've always been sceptical of the standard fedder. They seem to be neither one thing nor the other, and from my conversations with smiths, they are that size because that's as long as most of them could get tempered, and that weight for robustness so they don't keep breaking. I've also heard a lot of modern practitioners, particularly of German swordsmanship, argue about this. Half of them swear it all works better with larger swords, half have the contrary opinion. 
So the question is, thank God he's finally got to the question, um, are there many or any two-handed swords out there that correspond with the standard feather, or is everyone using the wrong weapon? If so, what should medieval longsword fencers be using? Right. Yes. I take it that by, that by standard feder, he, he means the sword that uh, modern historic fencers are using. Yes. Um, well, uh, the, the, the big problem is that although, although a number of um, original fencing swords, Fedeschvet, do survive, uh, museums uh, and catalogues in general seem very reluctant to give their weights. They'll usually give a size, but, but uh, we, we have to guess their weights. So what I've, what I've been able to, to, to find is that um, uh, genuine Fedeschvets um, are, are, are probably similar, similar to, to what... Um, Paul is talking about, but perhaps a bit bigger. They're somewhere between 1.3 and 1.67 kilos. Uh, the total length of 130, 135 centimeters. Uh, the blade around around 100 or just over 100 centimeters. Um, whereas swords of the uh, fighting swords of the period of the, of the mid 15th century uh, seem to average a, a good bit more than that. Uh, around two and a half kilos, uh, and about um, one point five, uh, <coughs> in average, one point five centimeters long. So depends what what your your modern fencing practitioner wants to do. If he wants to fight with an original fifteenth century sword, I mean this this that sort of sword, then he's got to use one that's two and a half kilos heavy. If he wants to. Um, if, if that's too heavy, if he wants to use the, uh, the sword that uh, the, the fencing schools, uh, for instance, as um, Maya and, and Marozzo show, uh, then yes, uh, <coughs> a modern fader um, what, of about, what does he say, uh, 1.6 kilos, that's, that, that's probably okay. But it, so, long as it, so long as you appreciate that when, you, when you're fencing with a, a Fedeschvet, you're not... You're not uh, imitating a, a battle or a combat, you are just fencing. So it's like the relationship between a modern foil and a small sword. Uh, yes, yes, I would think that's that's probably right. I mean, a, a modern sport foil uh, weighs um, well under half a kilo, sort of uh, point point three eight three three seven five three eight of a kilo. It's very light indeed, and then even right. Epe, which which is slightly heavier, is is still under half a kilo. Well, that's not heavy at all. Um, okay, so uh, I ha I heard a theory once that the Federschwerts were often made from when a, when a sharp, proper sword has been basically worn out, um, the edges get ground off and the point gets ground off so that the expensive steel is not wasted and maybe the hilt is adapted to the now much lighter blade, and that's how the Fedeschwerts were made, which is why you have those broad lugs next to the cross guard. Uh -huh. So, what do you think of that theory? Um, not much. Um, the, okay. the, the, the Fedeschwerts that I've seen, um, mm -hmm. the, the, the blade is, is flat, 
it's quite broad. It broadens out, in fact, towards the tip, which is squared off. Um, I can't see it having been cut down from a real sword at all. Uh, I mean, the whole blade would have had to be thinned down, which seems pointless if you can just make one from scratch, which I imagine would have been much easier. And as for the, the sort of square uh, block ricasso, um, how's that going to be, to be um, carved out from an original real sword? Okay, fair enough. So, so, so theory entirely blasted. Okay, I've got another one for you. This is, this is something that I was told long, long, long time ago. Uh, I won't say who said it because, you know, that's not fair because we were young. Um, one of the uses of a two-hand sword in battle was to go around basically cutting the heads off pikes. Yes, I've, I've come across that. In fact, uh, a lot of the books still repeat that. Uh, and as far as I'm concerned, okay. the gain is rubbish. Um, one of the, well, there are various reasons. Uh, the, the pikemen are, are packed tight. They're in several uh, ranks, uh, eight, uh, possibly even 16 ranks. Um, you, as a two-handed swordsman, have got to be on your own because, uh, well, your nearest companion is going to be, uh, say, four metres away from you. So you, you wade into the pikes, uh, you cut off a couple of heads, and then you're dead because there's far too many, far too many pikemen um, for you to deal with. So that's one argument. Uh, the other one is that um, trying to cut off the head of a pike, uh, which is perhaps 16 or 18 feet long, it's only held at one end, um, it just doesn't work. The, 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 the sword will just bounce off, or the, the, the pike just bends, or rather doesn't bend, it, it sways out of the way. Be, 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 just because... Uh, the the end which you're trying to cut off is not supported. I mean, yeah, people, and also I'm a woodworker. Uh huh. And the idea of being able to cut up, cut through, should we say, an inch diameter of ash, which is it's probably ash on a on a pike handle. Yes. Maybe oak. The idea of being able to cut through dry wood at that dimensions with a sword in a single blow. It's really, really unlikely. Yes. I mean, I certainly couldn't do it. Well, uh, apparently um, uh, people, people have actually experimented with trying to do that. And as you say, it doesn't work. Okay. Well, good. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad that, um, that my bullshit detector was, 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 was pinging for good reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, I'm, I'm, a bit sad about the, um, I'm a bit sad about the feathers not being ground down from sharp swords because that, that just appealed to me for some reason. <laughs> can't, can't say why, but it just did. <laughs> um, well, okay. Now, I know you're a collector. And yes. uh, when, when I first approached you about coming on the podcast, you, you mentioned some of the swords in your collection. Um, and you, have, you actually have a couple of two-handed swords and some medieval swords. So I know we know how you got started. You saw a 1796 pattern cavalry sabre in an antique shop and you went in and bought it for three pounds. Now, okay, it was a long time ago, but it's probably worth, I don't know, <laughs> several hundred times that now. <laughs> I have a 1796 pattern cavalry saber and it is a, it's, it's not in very good condition because it was like that when I bought it, but it's, it's just a fabulous, fabulous sword. So I totally get why you went for a 1796. Who could blame me? Um, but how did you get into like the rest of the collecting thing? How, how did, well, a lot of my listeners and friends, they, they really want to get like antique swords and they are hard to come by these days. 
Yes, indeed. Unless you're prepared to pay a lot of money at the auction houses. Um, I, I got into it. Uh, <coughs> basically, um, I, I was still um, still in my first job. I didn't have a huge amount of money. All that I could afford um, <coughs> were um, sort of 19th century reg regimental swords. Uh, so if I could pick one up for a, a few pounds, obviously it was increasing from three to up through 20, 40, 50, 60 pounds. Um, if I found one that I liked and I could afford it, I bought it. Um, and so I've got... And, and then, of course, once you start, you say, well, there's all these different patterns, as you say, there's 1788, 1796, uh, 1820, 1850 odd, and so on. Uh, you think, oh, I need, one, I need one, of, one of that pattern to complete the set, and then I need one of that pattern... Uh, right up to the 1908 pattern, and um, I've got virtually one of each of each uh, British regimental pattern, uh, just through uh, o over a long period of time, um, picking up ones that I could ones that I could find, uh, ones that I could afford. Then, as um, my financial position improved, shall we say, uh, <laughs> I, I took a fancy to to earlier swords, um, especially if. I could get one going not too, not too expensively at an auction. Um, and so it developed into, into 18th century, 17th century, one or two, one or two. Uh, it's, it's just kept going. I, I, I very rarely seem to be able to sell a sword. Um, <laughs> and so I've just now got quite a lot. Well, um, yeah, my experience of, of having swords, I've, I've never regretted buying one, but I've often regretted selling one. <laughs> yes, yes, I can understand that. I, I sometimes regret not having bought one when I could have, um, yeah. for, whatever, for whatever reason. Yes. Yeah. So, so I mean, how how do you how do you find like genuine two-handed swords to buy? Where do you get them from? Uh, the the recent ones I've I've found I've been at auction sales. Um, the, uh, I, I, the the Swiss one I got most recently. Um, was that? Can I mention the name uh, of the company? Sure. Is a, a Tom yeah, Del Mar, please. Tom Del Mar auction. That was oh, okay. About about yeah. a, um, just over a year ago. Um, I I got a, an, an Italian one, uh, which I got at a, an auction in in Edinburgh um, about so six or seven years ago. Uh, so those those are my two two handed swords. Uh, but basically. Uh, it, yeah, it seems to be auctions. A, a, a few, um, I, I, obviously, you come across dealers, you make friends, well, friends in inverted commas, um, with, with dealers, and if, if they've got sure. something handy which they think you might be interested in, they, they, they let me know, um, and I can say yes or no. I, I'm now in a financial position where I can be, be a bit more selective and uh, go a bit deeper into the market. So basically auctions, but uh, some dealers as well. Okay, because it's we've had another collector on the show um, who you may know actually. I'm not sure Malcolm Fair, who runs the National Fencing Museum near Worcester. Oh yes, uh, um, I, I know of him though I've never actually met him. Yeah, he's he collects um, fencing books and fencing memorabilia and equipment and swords going back to around 1700 um, yes. and he's, he's got this I mean and he's got like dozens and dozens and dozens of these small <laughs> swords and foils and 
FAs, and and he has what is probably the best collection of historical fencing books in private hands in Britain, possibly in Europe. Although I have a, a colleague in in Italy whose collection may be better than Malcolm's. I don't know, but anyway, it's like amazing, amazing collection, and. Yeah, his story was fairly similar. He started pretty young with not much money and got lucky a couple of times and made sort of acquaintanceships and friendships with dealers and then just showed up to a lot of auctions and often didn't manage to get anything because he was outbid. And, but every now and then got lucky and, and like 50 years later, he has this stunning collection. <laughs> um, <laughs> So yeah, I get. So I guess, like for people listening, the time to start is now. Well, uh, no, really, the time to start was uh, fifty years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but that's not an option. So, but but the thing is, if you if you put it off, it's just going to get worse. It's just going to oh, get yes. more expensive, and they're just going to get rarer because you know, yes. no one is producing more antique swords. Like, no one is producing more genuine antique swords. <laughs> so the number of available weapons can only go down. Well, I suppose as, so, as, you know. as people die and their collections get sold, that, that's a, a, a fairly common source. Yeah, I mean, I mean, more swords will come on the market as they become available. The actual swords themselves, you can't make more of them. They're a finite resource. Um, so, yeah, so they should just go up in value, which is, it's... It's good, because, I mean, to me, I'm more of a sword user than a sword collector. I only have... Like four or five antique swords. Yes, I, I can see, I, I can I see bought, them on the wall behind you. Oh, yeah, that's only a couple of those are antiques. Um, the rest are <laughs> sort of modern reproductions for, for training. But like, ah. I have a, a sabre there that is, and a small sword, which uh, the small sword's from about 1780, the sabre's from about 1820. And they're there for actually doing solo drills and, and practice with um, because they're in good enough condition that that's not going to do them any harm. Um, but yeah, there's absolutely nothing quite like handling an original sword. Yes. It's just, just feels different. As you know, as you well know, obviously. So, um, but I gather you're a sport fencer, which is not a bad thing. I didn't mean that to sound pejorative <laughs> in any way at all. I used to be a sport fencer. I, I, and you know, that gave me my start into what have you. But I gather you don't do much sort of historical martial arts. Is there a reason for that? Uh, this is something I've, I've, I've sort of almost pondered with myself uh, for, for a long time. I think um, it's, it's very odd. I, I, I was interested in, in, in having the swords, in, in, in handling them, uh, wielding them myself, but uh, I, I never really met anybody um, persuasive enough to, uh, to to get me into actual historic fencing, and, and I've Would always it need had much persuasion. <laughs> but pardon? Well, I said, wouldn't need much persuasion. Like, I I have this, this sort of. I mean, I make my living by teaching people how to do historical fencing, and I've yes. always had it as a kind of basic principle that if I have to persuade them to come to class, I'm not going to. Now, if I have to reassure them that it's okay to start even though you're old or unfit or have a dodgy wrist or whatever 
um, that's fine. I don't. I don't mind. I don't mind encouraging a person to get over there. You know, to, to to try it, even though they have restrictions or what have you. That's fine. But if they're like not really sure it's something they really want to do, then I I don't even try to persuade them because it's like okay, here is this cool thing, and if you don't want to do it, don't do it. It's fine. Yeah, um, I think. Um, but when I when I started sport fencing, which, which was at university. Uh, that came to take up more and more of my time, um, and I, I was reaching a level that I wanted to do to be better at. Uh, so I, I, I was in in a couple of clubs. I I had coaching. Um, I managed to actually uh, reach the national team, um, and wow. there, 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 there didn't seem to be any any sort of option to go and going to going to the sideline of historic fencing which wouldn't have wouldn't necessarily have improved my my sport fencing uh, and now i'm, I'm, I'm it really wouldn't have improved it at all um, do you mind my asking how old you are sorry how old are you how do you mind my asking how old you are i'm yeah. uh, nearly eight nearly 80 ah that's not too old <laughs> my, my 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 grandfather was fencing in his 80s doing sport fencing and yeah, okay. There are certain aspects of historical fencing that you probably shouldn't take up at the age of <laughs> nearly eighty. Like uh, maybe so maybe some of the armored combat. The armor's pretty heavy, and the wrestling is going to hurt. Yes. But, you know, I, I I don't see any reason not to swing a longsword around just because you're past a certain age. I, I've had yeah. I've had students start in their seventies successfully before. Well, maybe, maybe I'll maybe I'll think about it. <laughs> Don't think about it too long, because you're not getting any younger. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so so I guess when when the historical fencing thing really kicked off, you'd have been sort of in your mid fifties, and it didn't really get going for about five ten years, and so yes. yeah, I can see why maybe seeing it when you're like in your 60s and going you know what maybe that's a bit too well at that time in like the 90s and early 2000s it was mostly foolish young men like me at the time whacking each other harder than they should (laughs) um, with inadequate equipment so I can totally see why by starting at that point might not have been a good idea but things have moved on a very long way since then I'm, I'm glad to hear it well, tell you what, if I'm ever in Stirling, I will, I will give you a, I will give you an introductory lesson, and you see if you like it. Oh well, you, you you'll be very welcome anyway, regardless. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Um, okay, so right, I, I was doing a bit of research for this interview, um, and I came across this gem in your bio. Apparently, you have also represented Scotland at skiing. Now, Scotland is not famous for producing skiers, as far as I'm aware. So I have to ask what was going on there. Um, my publisher is not famous for getting things right, either. <laughs> um, ah, okay. Uh, I take it you, you, you found that on uh, one of the, uh, the flyers for the, for the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah well, that's where I found uh, it. What, what happened was the, the publisher asked me, obviously, for a, a short bio... Uh, to, to put on the, yeah. uh, the cover of the book uh, and I, ha- I just mentioned that I had 
uh, represented Scotland on the piste. I thought oh, it was obvious oh. the piste was the fencing piste. And they took it, the piste yes. skiing. But they, they didn't. <laughs> so, so there you have it. <laughs> All is made clear. Because I was thinking, when the hell did he ever have time to get to national level as a skier <laughs> when he was doing all this fencing and research? Where I was like, huh? <laughs> mind, mind well, let this be a lesson to everyone listening. Mind you, uh, <laughs> you can't yeah. believe everything you read on the internet. <laughs> zooming, zooming downhill on skis with a sword in each hand might, might be uh, interesting. That might be very interesting. Yeah, we should we should uh, invent the sport of um, ski jousting, where you have I, I can see it now. You have you have two um, sort of not too steep ski jumpy type slopes, or, or one more like a skate park one, but big enough for skiing, so enormous, right? And you ski towards each other, and you want to time it so that ideally you want to be going downhill and they're coming uphill, so you've got more power behind you. Oh, and you, if you meet in the middle, it's dead equal. But if you if you're a bit late, or if they manage to slow down a little bit on the way down, and you're going uphill and you're losing speed and they're gaining speed coming, ah, oh, that could be brilliant. I think we've just invented a new Olympic sport, Neil. <laughs> yeah, we've got Marvelous. Um, <laughs> okay, yeah, it, maybe, it's funny. It didn't. I was going to say maybe we should get. Toby Kappel in, interested uh, fr- from the jousting point of view and just put, put skis on him and uh, set him off on a whole new trajectory. That is a brilliant idea. I, actually, I interviewed Toby Kappel a few weeks ago and his interview is going out next week as we're, reco- we're recording this uh, on the 19th of October and it, it'll be going out on the f- second Friday after that. So I didn't mention it to him then, but he doesn't live very far from me, so I should... And we do actually have a dry ski slope in Ipswich, where I live. Yes. So I've got Toby six miles away, and a dry ski slope about three miles away. Oh, dear God. (laughs) 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 This is a really, really bad idea. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Up there with... I I don't suppose, as a student, you ever did wheelie bin jousting? uh, No, no. Or bicycle jousting? I don't think wheelie bins had been invented in my day. Fair enough. Uh, but bicycles had, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> oh, um, yes, yes. Ever tried bicycle jousting? Uh, no, no. It's, um... Ah, uh, it, yeah, then... It, it could be painful it's, if it's you really fall off. It's really good fun. It's very painful, that's the point. So, so you, you basically, you to bicycle joust, you use brooms, usually, because they're <laughs> students and we don't have money for equipment. Um, bike helmets optional because they were back then and you cycle towards each other with a broom couched under your arm with the head of the broom forward so you're not hitting with a point you're hitting with a wide bit so you can't knock out somebody's eye and you cycle towards each other and boom if you get it just right they go flying and it's very dangerous and stupid and you shouldn't do it <laughs> but it was great fun I would imagine both of well, you well, I'm, not, I'm, did not both of you come off uh, well, it depends how well you're seated. <laughs> I mean, there is there is the risk of you both coming off, and that's not an uncommon outcome. Um, because, yeah, the forces work in both directions. Um, <laughs> yes. I, I think I'll give Marvelous. that one a miss. 
Yeah, I think maybe that's not something to take up in your seventies. Um, probably that's definitely that's definitely you have to be below a certain age and a bit stupid to do it. Um, but yes, it's it's great fun. But yeah, I'm, I am not surprised that your publisher um, screwed up the the bio. Uh, my my experience of commercial publishers has been a sort of mixed bag. Um, none none of none of misrepresented my bio, but yeah, I, I can see how that that could easily happen. Um, uh, at least it didn't it didn't go into the book. The bit about skiing didn't go into the book. It's just on the flyer. Yeah, yeah, I, I got it off. I think I think that came. From, you don't have a very strong internet presence. I couldn't find a great deal of like official Neil Melville information. Um, so I think I got that from the Amazon listing. So like yes. about the book section on Amazon. That's probably where it came from. Marvelous. Um, speaking of, I, do you do any sort of social media or Twitter or? As I sort of hinted to you, we don't do anything like that at all. <laughs> Very sensible. It's just, just that, you know, some, some people, when they come on the podcast, they want me to direct the listeners to a particular, you know, their, their web page or social media account. But there's none of that. You, so, so what people need to do is just buy your book and read it. Ex- exactly. Buy, buy as many copies as they can be, be, uh, so that I, I get to the stage where I actually receive some royalties. That would be good. All right, okay, so our mission, listeners, is to go out and buy everyone you know a copy of Neil's book for Christmas plus one for yourself <laughs> so that Neil can get some actual royalties from the publishers. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> well, thank you very much indeed for joining me today, Neil. It's been delightful talking to you. Thank, thank you very much. Yes, it's, it's been most interesting. How it'll come out at the end, I've no idea. <laughs> well, we'll find out. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Neil. You can find the episode show notes at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast. While you are there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show, especially over the course of this last rather uh, rather yearish year, shall we say. Um, it really has helped me keep the lights on and keep motivated to keep producing the show. So thank you very much for your support. And if you guys would like to join me at Patreon to support the show, you can do so for not terribly much money at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. Thanks as always to Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents, which were originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project, but which I have repurposed here. And I am trying to organize a time with Andrew to get him on the show for an interview. Um, so Andrew, if you're listening to this, we need to sort our calendars out. <laughs> we have a sort of yes in principle, but getting it into practice is always the trick, isn't it? So join us next week when I will be talking to Anna Beard about sword fighting and ballet. And she challenges me to some, um, to attend her, her ballet class next time I we're in the same country. 
and we shall probably get some footage of me completely failing to do ballet, which will be kind of fun. So um, join me next week, which will be the first show of the new year where I'll be talking to Anna Beard. To make sure you don't miss it, you can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, do leave a review. It really does help. So I hope 2021 wasn't too unkind to you. And let's look forward to a much better 2022. See you next year, next week. Thank you.